Uh, Sam Baker has arrived, and so we can begin. Uh, it's a great pleasure to uh, preside over the last uh, seminar of the uh, semester, and I want to point out that next week is the Christmas party, and this is always a very jolly occasion, but there is a slight change uh, this year. Uh, it is at <coughs> 6 o'clock here in the HRC uh, downstairs, and it will be a memorable uh, occasion. Uh, we also want to thank Paul Woodruff for being willing to speak on such an interesting subject this afternoon. Uh, I won't try to describe uh, Paul's uh, various activities at the University of Texas, including the director of Plan 2 program and the founding deed of the graduate, undergraduate studies. Uh, but I will say just a couple of things about the subject, uh, because uh, Dodds, was such a famous person in Oxford that his name still uh, is mentioned around common tables and so on because in the First World War he was expelled, rustigated uh, because of his support for the Irish uprising. Uh, Bowra is a much more uh, common name in the common rooms and he's mentioned all the time because of his gaiety and his wit. But I was one time at a dinner party with Bauer sitting across from him. He was I was introduced to him and he nodded. Uh, and then I waited for the wit and the sparkle and it just didn't come. He complained about the soup. <laughs> so I'm hoping that Paul will bring him back to life. Paul Woodruff. Thank you. Thank you, Roger. Can, can I be heard in back? Yes. Good. Uh, my story begins uh, with uh, Rosalind, the radical countess of Carlisle, who could herself be a subject for a fascinating talk in British studies. She was a pillar of the temperance movement, the manager of her husband's vast estates, and a powerful advocate for women's rights and women's education. Determined that women should marry men of intelligence rather than inheritors of wealth or titles, she arranged with Benjamin Jowett to handpick eligible young scholars from Oxford of a liberal bent, she was a pillar of the Liberal Party, to visit her from Oxford at Castle Howard or Naworth Castle, there to encounter her daughters of whom she had an abundant supply. Uh, there were four. One of them married the owner of a brewery and she never spoke to her for 20 years after, apparently. Her eldest daughter, Lady Maria Henrietta, met and married a young scholar from Australia named Gilbert Murray, who would later be made Regis Professor of Greek at Oxford in 1908, after a brief career at the University of Glasgow and a stint outside academia altogether. I had this story about Jowett from Gilbert Murray's niece, Winifred Nicholson, uh, nay Roberts, whose father, while an Oxford student, had been sent north by Jowett to mingle with the Howards. The Howard family were the Carlyles. She was an artist, not a classical scholar, that is Winifred, but she remembered vividly how Uncle Gilbert had told her the ancient Greek myths and the tragic plays that were based on them and how they had uh, excited her and inspired her in her artistic life. Gilbert Murray was a public intellectual of the best kind. Through his translations of ancient Greek tragedies, 
which were said to have sold a half million copies. He made English speakers worldwide who were not scholars acquainted with a rich load of literature. And once British censorship was relaxed, his translations were performed, increasing still further the range to which he carried the classics. He was, at the same time, active in liberal politics. Like many of the Howards, he was a supporter of Irish home rule. He backed the League of Good Nations and other good causes. In 1936, he stepped aside from the professorship, and the contest that is my subject began. Who could possibly succeed Gilbert Murray? Should it be a great scholar, a belletrist, an influential teacher, a public intellectual? Consider now what Murray was and why he was so hard to replace. In Murray's translation, he shows himself a gifted poet in the late Victorian mode. If you can read Greek tragedy in the original, you will know the quality of those choral odes. They're often magically lyrical. Of course, they did not rhyme. Their lyricism shows itself in other ways. But English lyrics do rhyme. Then as now, our ears demand it. And popular lyrics continue to deliver rhyme. Murray had a gift for rhyming translations that feel natural. Most translators who try to rhyme come across as stilted and false, stuffing in words that have no place in the lines in order to make them rhyme, not Murray. Here's an example from one of the most famous odes in Euripides' Bacchae. <clears throat> the chorus is singing uh, in distress over having been uh, brought out of the mountains where they cannot uh, dance in worship of Dionysus. Will they ever come to me again, ever again, the long, long dances on through the dark till the dawn stars wane? Shall I feel the dew in my throat and the stream of wind in my hair? Shall our white feet gleam in the dim expanses? O oh, feet of a fawn to the greenwood fled, alone in the grass and the loveliness, leap of the hunted, no more in dread. Note the lovely half-hidden rhyme of dances with expanses, important words that deserve to rhyme. He has, however, missed one special detail. We have in this ode the first use of a transferred epithet to be noticed by ancient Greek critics. Here is Arithmus' version of the last few lines. As a running fawn might frisk for the green joy of the wide fields, free from the fear of the hunt. Green joy. That is the expression that startled Euripides' audience and his readers. Murray's translations have their detractors, of course. To 20th century taste, they seem archaic, and questions about our accuracy arise. Murray had the talent to see meanings that were not explicit in the Greek, and to translate lines into Greek that the Greek poets had never written, but nevertheless capture their meanings very well. Murray was not a philological scholar. Uh, well, he was. I mean, he was much more than that. Uh, for much of the 19th century, classical scholarship was something they did in Germany, or perhaps Glasgow, but not at Cambridge or Oxford. Uh, the greatest classical scholar of the mid-1800s was George Grote, a banker and politician who had nothing to do with either Oxford or Cambridge. By the end of the 19th century, 
fine scholars were emerging in Britain. The mark of a great scholar was, and is, the ability to pr produce a convincing text on the basis of manuscripts and to annotate it in such a way that lesser scholars, such as I, can write about the text intelligently. A. E. Hausmann comes to mind for Latin texts, for Greek texts. In this period, Richard Jebb was such a fine commentator that it is his editions of Sophocles remain in use. Gilbert Murray edited Aeschylus and Euripides for Oxford classical texts, and the work was good enough for its time, but both have been superseded more recently. When Murray retired in 1936, what did Oxford classics need most? Three candidates were under discussion. J.D. Denniston, 1887 to 1949, had an established reputation. His book on Greek particles, which came out in 1934, has almost biblical standing among scholars to this day. But he did not have much of a chance. Uh, the other two are the subject of my paper. Cecil Morris Baura, 1898 to 1971, a fellow of Wadham College, known for his work on Pindar. He had been one of the co-editors with Murray of the Oxford Book of Greek Verse. He was a scholar, a belletrist, and a poet, or at least he tried to be. The other was an Irishman, E.R. Dodds, 1893 to 1979. He had been professor of Greek at the University of Birmingham since 1924. He had shown his scholarly proficiency on authors not widely known, uh, mainly Proclus, a uh, uh, Neoplatonist, and was not part of the Oxbridge academic establishment. He too had been a poet. The appointment of Regis Professor was to be made by the king, who apparently consulted no one but Gilbert Murray. <laughs> who would the winner be? At Oxford, everyone was betting on Bowra. Now, both Bowra and Dodds wrote memoirs. Bowra's, written in 1967, published in 67, covers the years from his birth to 1939, and is, a, is very thorough. It's a, it's a big, heavy book. Dodds, a much lighter book, came out in 1977 and carries him lightly uh, from his first memories to his retirement. On Bowra, we now also have a thorough biography by Leslie Mitchell, commissioned by Wadham College and using uh, materials that no one, I think, had seen before Wadham College released them to Mitchell, including quite a bit of Bowra's poetry. Bowra was born in China just two years before the Boxer Rebellion which was his first experience of the dislocation of war. His father was in the Chinese Customs Service. Young Baura was taken to England when he was five years old, and when his family returned to China, he stayed on for his education. His public school was Cheltenham. His education was interrupted between public school and university by military service, after which he went to New College, Oxford, as a more mature student than usual. And there at New College, he began his career as the center of attention in an academic environment. That was his favorite role in life. <clears throat> Dodds was born in Ireland. His father, an Ulsterman, died when Dodds was seven after a brilliant career in teaching that was cut short by very serious alcoholism. 
His mother was Anglo-Irish from a vanishing class known as Squireens, small Anglo-Irish landowners. He and his single mother were left on the edge of poverty. He had good schooling, nonetheless, and nurtured a rebellious streak from a young age. He was at Campbell's College, a public school in Belfast, in 1910, when his class was told the news, represented by his masters as very sad news, that King Edward VII had died. The masters expected the boys to show grief. Dodds believed in always saying what he felt or thought. So he asked, but wasn't he a very bad man and not a particularly good king? <laughs> this did not go down well with the masters, who were Ulstermen, after all, and as Dodds said, were uh, more royalist than the king. He was later expelled uh, from this secondary school for writing uh, a letter to the headmaster explaining uh, where the headmaster had gone wrong. <laughs> the letter was probably entirely accurate, but the headmaster was insulted and went to the governors of the school and said, either he goes or I go. And I think the masters at the school would have preferred the headmaster to go, but uh, Gilbert, I'm sorry, uh, Dodds went. Uh, luckily, he had already been admitted to Oxford, uh, to University College. I think he had set his heart on Balliol, but he wasn't, uh, his, his uh, exam or interview wasn't quite good enough for Balliol. Uh, but he, he went to uh, Oxford, uh, where he would meet and make a very powerful impression on Gilbert Murray. Uh, and Murray made a powerful impression on him. Uh, at Oxford, he experimented with cannabis. He was ahead of his time. Uh, he did well in honors moderations and literae humaniores, known as greats, the classics degree. And of course, uh, he was expelled, uh, as you know, essentially sent down, uh, for insulting the crown by protesting the execution of the leaders of the Easter Rising. So first, I, I want to talk about the two men and their relation to poetry, uh, then a little bit about the war, and then about their scholarship. Both Dodds and Baura were passionately fond of poets and poetry, but their taste differed. Dodds was very close to both Winston Auden and Louis McNeese, whose literary executor he was to be. Baura despised Auden. He viewed Auden as, a, as an impure poet with no vision who would teach the young that poetry was only about rumpled bedclothes. <laughs> Baura believed uh, that a, a poet uh, should be an, an heroic and outstanding figure somehow connected with the aristocracy. Dodds believed that anybody had a poet in him uh, and brought uh, to poetry the originality of himself. You know, any, and he, uh, he wrote quite interestingly about that. Bauer's favorite poet from the ancient world was Pindar. Pindar made a career celebrating the aristocratic lineage of victorious athletes. Uh, that is, the families that could reward a poet uh, for uh, celebrating their athletes. Pindar, said Baura, was more sublime 
than any poet in the world, sublime by sheer poetry. Bauer saw poets as like prophets. He adored and was adored by Edith Sitwell and was friends with W.B. Yeats. And also, we will see, Dodds was uh, a friend of Yeats. Bauer wrote a great deal about poetry, but his greatest contribution to poetry was not as a literary critic, but as what his biographer Mitchell calls an honest broker of poetry across linguistic boundaries. He read Russian fluently and introduced Russian poetry to English readers. He advocated for Anna Akhmatova and became quite close to the sisters of Boris Pasternak, who lived in exile in an Oxford suburb. Through them, he brought Pasternak's poetry to the attention of English readers and formed a close, long-distance friendship with the great Russian poet, uh, long before he was well-known in the West. As for literary criticism, Bauer was a maverick. He hated the fashionable work of F.R. Levis and Edmund Wilson, proposing that such critics should have continual prodding with a poisoned dung fork. <laughs> he was collegial with Enid Starkey, whose work on the French poets he admired, but he was often at odds with her over her campaigns on behalf of candidates for the famous uh, professorship of poetry at Oxford. Uh, he almost always disagreed with her. He, Baura, wanted desperately to be a poet, but by the time he was 30, he recognized that he would never achieve distinction in that way. <coughs> uh, from reading Mitchell and from looking at his poetry, I suspect that his terrible experiences in World War I left him with memories on which he would have to draw as a poet if he were going to be honest, but which for human survival he had to keep deeply buried. He spoke lightly about his war experience at High Table when he did speak of it, probably to hide the inner wounds. We, has from, we have from his youth a, a sort of conventional complaint about the war and the interest it serves, which I'm pretty sure he wrote before he actually served in the war. Parapets stacked with the moldy dead to keep the wine and the wine glass red. Boys bayoneted in the night to keep official buttons bright. A people lashed to a wheel of fire to satisfy a fool's desire. Fields sliced to shreds and cities sacked to keep a mothy creed intact. Lithe bodies full of sap shot down to gild the glory of a crown. Here is anger and wit enough, but it's not really the stuff of poetry. And it comes before his actual experience of combat. He was only 18 when he wrote this. But if we, we have seen very young poets, such as Keith Douglas, who, whose work I hope you know, produce masterpieces of poetry at a very young age from the experience of war. Love might have brought out the best in Bauer as a poet, but it was a subject he found painful, and on which after his adolescence, he was silent. Homosexuality was scandalous during most of his lifetime. Acting on it was illegal and deemed immoral as well. Bauer went out of his way not to be identified as homosexual, to the extent of going out of his way to avoid having any contact with Anne uh, André Gide, 
when he was awarded an honorary degree at Oxford owing to uh, Enid Starkey's efforts. Uh, Gide being known as a public defender of pederasty. Uh, we know that Baura had one affair of the heart, a mysterious one in Petrograd, shortly before his military service. There he met a Russian brother, a guardsman, and the, the guardsman's sister, and evidently fell hard in love for one or both of them. <laughs> We're not sure which or both. And in this period he wrote, uh, this little poem is called Nocturne. Again, he's about 18 writing this. Uh, it's very impressive for 18. Dim shadowed in a silvery mist the city lies, the moon as though to swooning kissed upon her lies. The river from her source is locked in rest and holds a single trembling star within her breast. Alone in perfect quietness I wait for thee and soon shall feel thy loveliness grow one with me. This is lovely if conventional and creditable work for an adolescent. Baura went on to produce many elegant verse translations, especially of Russian poets. He believed in translating rhyme and meter. So here's an example of a, a translation of a, a poem by Fyodor Chuchev, uh, a poet I have read in Russian, who does uh, sound roughly like this. Uh, this is a short poem. On the horizon rises holy night, and day who comforts us, day whom we love, withdraws her coverlet of golden light that covered the abysses from above. And vision like the outer world has gone, man like an orphan to his homelessness stands naked, all his force and strength fordone, face to face over that obscure abyss. A dream that long ago passed out of sight seems all that light and living brilliance, and in the strange inexplicable night he learns the fated legacy of chance. Now that's Bauer's translation of Chuchev, and you see how he's doing it. it, 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 it the, these are rhyming ABAB quatrains uh, with a pretty steady meter. <clears throat> uh, Dodds would have none of this activity. Uh, by contrast, he held to Frost's dictum that poetry is precisely what cannot be translated. Dodds was opposed to teaching classics of poetry in translation. He wrote, you cannot undress a poet's meaning and reclothe it in a new suit of words like a tailor's dummy. It has no suit but its birthday suit. And to strip it of that is to destroy it as poetry, or at best to turn it into a different poem on the same subject. Let students read poetry in languages they know, he said, even if the poetry in languages they know is not so great. A live dog, he said, is better than a dead lion. He loved poetry too much to translate it. Uh, I love poetry enough to translate it, so does Kurt. You know, we, we disagree with Dodds on this. <clears throat> uh, Dodds began writing poetry at a fairly early age. Uh, in Ireland, uh, he met George Russell, known as A.E., and through A.E., uh, he met Yeats. Uh, he's still a teenager now, who later said that he liked the young man's poetry, but not the young man. Uh, and I could see why he liked the poetry, and I could see why he didn't like the young man. Dodds was outspoken, as you've already heard. Uh, he said what he thought, and so he felt it his duty to contradict Yeats. And now I quote, when the great poet talked nonsense, 
as it appeared to me he often did. <laughs> when Yeats said that the English were a nation of shopkeepers with no imagination, Dodds brought up Shelley and Blake and asked if they had no imagination. The great poet was not amused. As a, nevertheless, they did work together on various pro-Irish projects. Uh, as a student at Oxford, Dodds ran into a young man at Merton uh, who was writing a thesis on F.H. Bradley, an American, who had come there for the purpose. Uh, finding that he and the American had a shared interest in poetry, Dodds invited him to join a group they called the Coterie. <coughs> uh, the Coterie read each other their poems and tore them apart critically on, at evening meetings. Uh, the American came to one of their meetings and read them a poem he had been working on. And for once, the members of the Coterie were silenced. They could not tear apart the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, which was then presented to an audience for the first time and which simply amazed them. They had heard nothing like it, except, I mean, the closest thing would be the French symbolists. The American continued to come to meetings of the coterie, but said little, though the little he said apparently was worth hearing. Aldous Huxley was also a member, or at least a friend of Dodd's. After uh, leaving Oxford, <coughs> Dodds was given a professorship uh, at the University of Birmingham following a brief period at Reading, uh, which didn't have a university yet. They had the, the seeds of a university where he taught for a few years and met the woman he would marry uh, and whom he called Bette, uh, who was the love of his life. Uh, they went to Birmingham in 1924 uh, and they had a terrible disappointment. Uh, it turned out uh, that for Bette, uh, pregnancy was life-threatening. Uh, she would suffer from eclampsia whenever she became pregnancy. And after two episodes uh, that led to abortion, uh, abortions to save her life, they realized that they would never have children. Uh, she grieved terribly over this. And I believe that her grief was the subject of this poem, which I'm going to read. This is the one poem of Dodds that I'm going to read. I found it in the HRC. Uh, the, uh, uh, Dodds published his, his poetry uh, with a wonderful premise, uh, preface uh, arguing on behalf of the unprofessional poet uh, in which he does say there's a poet in everybody uh, if, if uh, anybody can find uh, enough uh, to bring himself into it. Here's the poem. The title is Sunt Lacrimae. You'll rep you may recognize the reference to Virgil. At sunset from their old Atlantic bases, chill from the islands of the western death, strange mists, sea-bred, alien, unheralded, creep suddenly with salt, benumbing breath on the safe inland places. Even so strangely, from the earthbound years in that cold purgatory at the roots of the mind, a thin, Marginal, a thin magical rain steals over heart and brain of one I love, and suddenly her eyes are blind with some dead woman's tears. Mm. I think he was a good poet. Uh, actually, I, I, I really had a splendid time in the, in the HRC reading room uh, working through his book of poetry. 32 poems. Uh, 
that's the title of the book, 32 Poems, with a, an essay on non-professional poetry. In 1930, Dodds had an opportunity to hire a junior college at Birmingham. A young Mertonian was strongly recommended to him as a scholar who was also a poet, and of course, that appealed to Dodds. Highly impressed by the young man, Dodds was on tenterhooks till the young man had finally taken his exams for greats and the results came out. He had indeed earned a first-class degree with a trivial viva. And so Louis McNeese came to Birmingham and became one of Dodd's closest friends. If you love poetry, I hope you know Louis McNeese. He's a, a wonderful poet. I, if, you, uh, if you don't read anything else, read Autumn Journal. Uh, it's a long, uh, it's a brilliant long poem written in 1938. Louis McNeese had been isolated as a student at Merton. He was too much an artist to mingle with the Harties, the athletes at Oxford, and he was too heterosexual to move with the artistic set. He had that disadvantage. <laughs> In Dodds, he found an ideal older companion for travel, conversation, and simply feeling at home. It was to Dodds that he left his poetry on his untimely death. Dodds was his literary executor. Dodds edited the first complete edition of his works, and it's, I think it's a fine edition, though it has now been superseded. Here's one poem by Louis McNeese that I think was written about tea in Dodds' uh, salon in Birmingham, which faced his beloved garden through a bay window. Uh, Dodds loved his garden. Uh, the room, this is, the, the poem is called Snow, and obviously written in winter, and I, they have plants inside and outside. The room was suddenly rich, and the great bay window was spawning snow and pink roses against it, soundlessly collateral and incompatible. World is suddener than we fancy it. World is crazier and more of it than we think, incorrigibly plural. I peel and portion a tangerine and spit the pits and feel the drunkenness of things being various. And the fire flames with a bubbling sound, for world is more spiteful and gay than one supposes. On the tongue, on the eyes, on the ears, in the palm of one's hands, there is more than glass between the snow and the huge roses. You may need to read that more than one time. Uh, and Birmingham, uh, along with his friendship uh, for McNeese, Dodds became a close friend of Whiston Auden, whose father was a local daughter, doctor. His father introduced them. This, too, was a genuine friendship. In the 40s, when Dodds was at Oxford, he continued to have young poets and students who loved poetry to tea in his salon but alas, without the beloved garden, which he was unable to recreate in Oxford. He had to leave it behind. I, I came to know as a young student uh, G.E.L. Owen, Will Owen, who later became a powerful scholar of ancient Greek philosophy. Uh, Owen had poetic ambition and was part of Dodd's student circle. They went regularly to have tea and talk about poetry with Dodds. 
Owen told me that he remembered the frisson they felt on being read for the first time. Lay your sleeping head, my love, human, on my faithless arm, which had been sent from New York. It is, I think, as, as fine and honest a love poem as, as there is in the English language. And he learned that it had been written to a man, to Chester Coleman, in the 1940s. That was something quite new. So that's a brief introduction to the relationship between these two men and poetry. Uh, Dodd's forward-looking, modern, Bowra's more backward-looking, if you will. They had very different experiences of war. Bowra served in the artillery as a forward observer in observation posts from 1917 to 1918. He survived death narrowly on two occasions. There is hardly a, a position more dangerous than that of an artillery observer in the day before satellites. I, I, I was actually trained for this job uh, when I was in the Army. You have to be in the forefront of the line where you could see whatever target you were trying to uh, obliterate with your artillery. And you would call instructions uh, by telephone. Uh, when I was trained, we still used telephones for this. Part of the job of the artilleryman was to string telephone lines. This is not irrelevant to Bauer's story. Uh, so that you could call to the artilleryman to either raise or lower the barrel or shift it a little bit to left or right so as to obliterate the target. And he had this sad experience of having to uh, wipe out a, uh, a beautiful church in a French village that was being uh, used by the Germans as an observation post. The, yeah, I, by the way, I was not allowed to do this because of my poor eyesight, which may have saved my life. Uh, the observer is in danger, but it has one privilege, uh, your own telephone line, uh, unlike uh, most uh, people in, 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 in the trenches in World War I. Uh, wherever Bauer went, there was a telephone line for him to call in uh, instructions about the fire. This saved Bauer's life when he was buried in a trench at Cambrai. It was a sturdy German-made trench, and that too helped preserve his life. But it was the phone that saved him. Uh, it was still working. And just before he lost consciousness in the caved-in trench, he called, and someone who knew him heard his voice, and they dug him out. But he did lose consciousness. An amazing story. Luckily, the wire had not been cut. Uh, that, that is amazing. Then there was the battle he fought in his pajamas when the bunker in which he slept was overrun by the enemy. I, I can't imagine soldiers wearing pajamas at night. But we certainly didn't. Uh, he had these memories of narrow escapes, and no doubt he carried with him also the memories of comrades who had been blown to pieces around him. Uh, when Dodds arrived at Oxford in 1936, uh, Bauer was known to ask him frequently and everywhere, what did you do in the war, Doddy? <laughs> Dodds had not served. The story uh, about Dodds uh, is this. Uh, Dodds, uh, like many of the 
Irish, both Anglo-Irish and, and, and Catholic Irish, uh, was not impressed by the rebels in the Easter Rising. Uh, they thought it was much too soon, it wasn't planned, it was disturbing everything, uh, and so they were not big supporters of the Easter Rising. But everything changed for them uh, when the British brought in the Black and Tans and started executing the leaders of the Easter Rising. That turned things around. Uh, Dodds himself was outraged uh, by the executions of uh, Irish patriots and expressed his outrage uh, both in Ireland, I think, and in England. And for this, uh, he was essentially sent down. Uh, his uh, uh, tutors uh, insisted that he be allowed to come back to take his final exams, which he did uh, after a year of private study, uh, and which he actually did not ace. Uh, he says he had a terrible time writing the essays because he'd been uh, being rusticated in Ireland. He, he, he had forgotten how to write uh, a, a short essay on an exam, and so he, he only answered uh, about half the questions. Uh, but he answered them so well uh, that they gave him a viva. What's a viva? Uh, viva voce, uh, a, 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 an oral exam uh, on, the, on the questions he hadn't answered. And he did so well on the viva that they gave him a first class degree. But after what the black and tans had done to uh, the Irish patriots, Dodd said, I cannot ever wear this uniform. Uh, and during this period, he traveled by boat on his way to take his final exams at Oxford, traveled by boat uh, from uh, Ireland to London uh, with a whole bunch of black and tans who were on leave, going on leave. And the boat had uh, one table for meals where everyone sat together. And of course, one of the black and tans proposed a toast to the king. Dodds couldn't raise his glass to the king. He just couldn't do it. Uh, immediately afterwards, he was confronted on deck by the black and tans who threatened to throw him overboard. Uh, and they meant it. I mean, I think they might really have done it. He said he, tried, he talked them out of it, persuading them that the ship's manifest uh, would, would prove that uh, he had started out with the ship and the questions would be asked about why, why he didn't uh, uh, disembark at the end. Uh, so instead, the black and tans raided his stateroom uh, took his pajamas and threw them overboard. <laughs> so pajamas figure in both men's stories. <laughs> this, the award went to Dodds, as you know. Dodds became the Regis Professor of Greek at Oxford in 1936. When Dodds and Bett came up to Oxford from Birmingham, <coughs> Oxford society turned its back on them both. And they were miserable. They'd left their friends and their garden behind. And the consensus at Oxford was that Bowra had been cheated of what he deserved. Dodds, they felt, had been virtually a traitor to the crown. Rumors of Bowra's eccentric sexuality had queered his chances, they thought. And that was unfair. But the pain endured by Dodds and his wife in their early years at Oxford was almost unbearable. I don't know why they didn't leave. But this made him ask himself whether he really did deserve 
the Regis professorship, and I think it affected his scholarly career thereafter. In 1936, both Baura and Dodd were relatively young men and had most of their scholarly output ahead of them. A appointing a professor looks to the future, not the past. Which one of the two would, in the future, do the kind of work that could justify holding the Regis professorship? Well, we can't answer that, really, because the future does not hold the answer. The appointment changed the game for both men. Dodd certainly produced the more important work after 1936. But then he was trying hard, and somewhat painfully, to live up to his new position. He left behind uh, his passion uh, for the Neoplatonists and the occult that interested him so much. Baura went on doing what he liked. After 1936, Baura continued to be productive, writing, translating, and holding court at Wadham. He would secure a place as one of Oxford's great public intellectuals. He had a delightful job as warden of his college and a knighthood. His most important work in scholarship was on the poet Pindar. He edited the OCT of Pindar's work, translated the poems, and wrote about him. His book on Sophocles is well regarded and sometimes cited. I have read almost everything available about Sophocles is one of my favorite topics, and I found much that is useful, but none of it was in Baura's book, which is elegant, conventional, but never probing or adventurous. Dodds also did work on texts. As a young scholar, he had focused on Neoplatonism. His first work was a, was a very impressive commentary on Proclus, and this connected roughly with the interest he had in the occult. It was fascination with the occult that connected him to the poet A.E. and through him to Yeats. But after 1936, he felt he should work on texts of more general interest at Oxford. Oxford is a limited place. It is uh, circumscribed by the, uh, by the, the, the texts uh, that are assigned for, for the degrees. And no one was much interested in Proclus, and so Dodds had to leave that behind. Dodds produced a magnificent commentary on Plato's Gorgias. The, I think it's the finest commentary in any work of Plato's. Uh, for this, he traveled uh, around uh, to European libraries to see for himself the manuscripts in various libraries that had been incorrectly reported to Burnett, who, done, who had done the Oxford classical text. Uh, Burnett had had to rely, because he couldn't travel at the time, uh, on other people's readings of those manuscripts, and they were, in many cases, not accurate. There is an art to deciphering an original manuscript. Uh, Dodds learned it and applied it in this case. Dodds also produced the new text of Euripides' Bacchae, connecting what he called, correcting, what he called the faults and fancies of Gilbert Murray's edition. And his edition of the Bacchae is just fascinating. It inspired me uh, in, in to do a great deal, actually, in many directions. Dodds followed Murray's example by giving brilliant lectures on classical topics. It was Murray's lectures 
that had so excited Dodds that he shelved his plan to switch to modern English literature and instead stayed with the classics. Because he thought, gosh, if, if you can do that, if you can do what Murray does, it's really worth it. Uh, the best of these lectures found their way into print in a book entitled The Ancient Concept of Progress and Other Essays on Greek Literature and Belief. Uh, these uh, papers can be read by non-scholars, but they're also of great value to scholars. The most famous is an essay entitled On Misunderstanding the Oedipus Rex, which should be required reading for anyone uh, writing on this play. I recently edited a book of philosophical essays about Oedipus, and virtually all of the authors cite this essay of Dodd's. It's impossible to write about Oedipus and not cite this essay. Dodd's most famous book was The Greeks and the Irrational, which came out in 1951. It was the text of the Sather Lectures, uh, which he was invited to give. Uh, before Nietzsche's influence was felt, uh, scholars continued to treat uh, the ancient Greeks as models of ordered, rational thought. Dodds changed that. In retrospect, we can say that Murray's choice was excellent. Dodds did become the greatest classical scholar of his generation, the most influential and with the broadest range. We cannot say, however, that Bauer would not have been a good choice. Who knows how his career would have developed had he held the famous professorship. As for me, I don't think he had the brilliance or the originality of mind to match E.R. Dodds. His work shows him to have been more interested in lettres than in game-changing scholarship. His poetic taste shows him to have been stuck in the past, unsuited to appreciating the development of arts in the 20th century. And, by the way, also, unsuited to appreciating developments in the sciences. When Wadham came into some money and there was a proposal uh, to hire a fellow in, the, in science, uh, Bauer opposed it on the grounds that science was simply a matter of facts and learning facts was not education. <laughs> he, he, yeah, he was a, somewhat limited. Dodds had a mind that was at the same time more adventurous than Bauer's, and more meticulous in scholarship. Bauer's own verdict in the end was that Dodds was a good choice, though he would have preferred Deniston. In his memoir, he has nothing but good to say about Murray. He doesn't blame Murray. Of Murray, he says, it was impossible to know him without loving him. In 1936, when the sad news came to Bauer and he had to share it with Deniston, Bauer's friend Cyril, Cyril Bailey told him that what seemed like a rebuff could easily turn into a blessing. <clears throat> he was quite right, says Bauer. I was saved from a post to which I was not naturally fitted, and before long my life took a new direction to which I was much more suited. Thank you very much. Thank <laughs> you.